So, good morning, everybody. Um, I know you already had some meditation, but I always like to sit for a few minutes quietly with people before giving a talk. So, let's just sit for a couple of minutes. Yeah, come back to your breath. Just breathing normally and naturally. Let your mind relax. And then we'll cultivate our motivation and go into the Dharma talk. And then let's think that we'll listen and discuss today so that we can not simply improve our knowledge, but to really learn material that will make us think and transform our minds and our lives. And to transform our minds and our lives not simply for our own benefit, but so that we can make a really wonderful contribution to society and to the welfare of all living beings through being able to benefit them in whatever way they need or are open to being benefited at any particular time. series of talks on the Sharing the Dharma Day um, once every month, using as kind of our, our book, Buddhism for Beginners. So this is the, the um, edition. That's the old cover. And they are reprinting it. A new cover. So, it's a new cover. I only have one of these. Um, but anyway, the content is the same. So, um, I think here are the pages marked. I'll, I'll use this one. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think this week our um, our theme is science, creation, and rebirth. It's a really juicy topic. Yeah. So uh, in in this chapter, well, the whole book is questions and answers about Buddhism. So let me just read you the questions that are in this chapter. And then we'll talk about some of them, okay? So what is the relationship between Buddhism and science? How was the world created? (laughs) What is the mind? What is the relationship between the brain and the mind? What is rebirth? How did the mind begin? Who or what created it? 
What connects one life with the next? Is there a soul, Atman, self, or real personality that one goes from one life to another? Do plants have minds? Are they sentient beings? Could a computer ever become a sentient being? Is there one universal mind that we are all a part of? Where did ignorance come from? Were we once enlightened and then became separated from that state? What is Buddha nature? Why can't we remember our past lives? <laughs> and is it important to know what our past lives were? And if any, everyone had previous lives, how do you account for the population increase? Okay, so there's a number of topics in this chapter. I don't think we'll get through all of them in this talk, okay? Um, but let me just start with the beginning, that uh, the relationship between Buddhism and science, because this is something that is uh, getting more attention in society nowadays. There's the My Life Institute, that was founded in the 80s, I think maybe around 85, 86. Uh, and they started off having dialogues of scientists uh, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And these were private little dialogues. Um, I, ha I was able to attend a number of them at the beginning. But then it became a really big thing and they started having public dialogues at MIT, at Stanford, and so on and uh, also at Garrison Institute in New York. And now the Mind and Life Institute has become quite a big thing, and they give scholarships to uh, budding uh, scientists, um, you know, who want to investigate the relationship between the mind and the brain and between science and Buddhism. So it's, it's uh, quite something now. I think the thing, some of the things that science and Buddhism have in common is uh, this wish to know what reality is or what the truth is. You know, both are, are aiming to know what is true, what is reality. And both are relying on, um, on reasoning and on factual data. Yeah. And so even the uh, His Holiness Dalai Lama has said that if something in the scriptures can be proven to not exist, then we have to leave it aside because we are looking for what reality and truth are, not just to follow up on, uh, you know, what was written in previous scriptures for the sake of doing that without any good reason. Okay. And so, in that way, he has, uh, well, put it this way, in uh, some of the scriptures that, that came a few hundred years after the Buddha, um, by Vasubandhu, he spoke about the cosmology of the world. And the world was flat, it had a center mountain and four continents, and the sun and the moon revolved around the world. It was kind of like medieval Europe, in a way. Uh, and so that's how the structure of the universe was described, and that corresponded with the ancient Indian um, belief system. Yeah? So the Buddha didn't challenge that. He just went along with that. But uh, the measurements that were given in the scriptures for the location of the sun and the moon do not match what modern science has discovered. And also we have discovered that we uh, circle the sun, and it's not vice versa, that we're really not the center of the universe. Uh, and so His Holiness says, you know, we have to leave aside that part from the scriptures and adopt the view that can be proven and shown to exist by using reasoning and factual data. Okay? So in that way, the two systems are, are quite similar. Okay? The ways in which they are different is that science, the field of science is material objects, yeah, and specifically things that can be known through our senses, seen, hear, smell, taste, and touch. Okay? Um, the field of Buddhist research is much more the mind, 
and the experience of living beings. Now, of course, we have, you know, scientific fields like psychology and sociology and such. Uh, and it's interesting how psychologists um, have to, um, you know, make their field much more scientific with data and experiments and uh, all that kind of stuff. And I, I have kind of a funny attitude about that because I, when I was going to school, I had to work my way through... Um, I was working at the same time I was attending university and I worked on two psychological research projects and I saw that they are not objective <laughs> and I think most scientific ex, uh, you know, things cannot be totally objective because you can't control all the variables and also because there really isn't an objective reality out there and the scientists themselves are coming to see that. You know, the first big aha was, you know, is light a particle or a wave? And figuring out that it depends upon the observer. Well, that's exactly what the Buddha said 2,500 years ago. Is that how we perceive things depends upon how we observe them, how we conceptualize them. Okay, so um, some of the uh, science is coming to to look at some of the the premises that Buddhism is is based on, uh, but also it has some assumptions with which that are not in accord with Buddhism. For example, most scientists, in spite of this thing that the observer uh, influences whether something is. Uh, what something is. Most of us really feel that there's an objective world out there that doesn't depend on our mind and that doesn't depend on how we conceive and label things. And Buddhism really emphasizes personal experience and so, for example, developing the mind through meditative abilities and Although they've done some scientific research on this, um, you know, measuring people's brain waves and, and having them keep journals and so on when they've been doing meditation retreat. Uh, and they've come up with, with some good results and show that, yes, things change due to meditation. Again, I don't think that these um, research projects can be truly objective because uh, if you're meditating knowing that your brain waves are going to get measured and you're meditating with all this stuff on your head um, <laughs> and the machines beeping around you, how can you say that's not going to influence your meditation? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, maybe for a few people have, who have genuine samadhi, that might be the case. But, you know, aside from that, I think just doing the testing influences the kinds of results that you get. Um, but nevertheless, I think doing this kind of research is, is very good and very helpful because uh, in our society when science says something, then people sit up straight and listen, even though science changes its mind every year. Yeah, doesn't it? And, I mean, scientists themselves will be the first to t tell you that they don't completely understand how things work. But as a society, whatever is found this year, we believe to be the objective truth. And, of course, when they change it next year due to new research, um, then that's the new objective truth. Isn't it? <laughs> okay? So... Uh, you know, so I think the scientific research is good because it gives Buddhism some validity. But also, one of the points I'm getting at is that we shouldn't trust science, the scientific perspective too much because, as we see, it's changing all the time and it's not something cast in stone. And it doesn't really um, take personal experience into account. Everything has to be objective. But how do you measure subjective personal experience in an objective way? 
you know. And these were the doubts that I had when I was uh, in school doing, you know, working as a lab assistant for these psychological research experiments. You know what the two projects I worked on were? <laughs> yeah, th this was in the early 70s. Uh, the people who hired me had grants for marijuana research. So I was working, you know, working and... <laughs> you know, anyway, trying to understand, doing, doing my own marijuana research. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, what I'm saying is there's some similarities, but there's also some, some differences, especially in the field of awareness or the field of research. Um, I've noticed when I've talked with scientists that when you ask them what the mind is, they really pause. You know, when you ask them for data about something, they can give you the data or the studies. You know, if you ask them about the brain, they can give you a lot of information. But the mind is a very puzzling concept. Yeah? And so some scientists uh, just basically say there is no mind or that the mind is the brain. Uh, and they, they're very reductionist. In other words, there's nothing aside from the brain. Which is, I find, kind of a strange conception, you know, because that means that when you love somebody, you love their brain. You know, and if you put their brain out there, you would go, oh, I love you so much. You know, I mean, if you're really reductionist, that's the way it would be, wouldn't it? That you would look at their brain and, and swoon. <laughs> That's not re really happens, is it? Uh, some scientists say that the brain is an emergent property. I mean, the mind is an emergent property from the brain. Now, I've never quite understood what is meant by an emergent property. I know some of you have scientific <coughs> backgrounds. Can you explain that? <coughs> yeah, Jason, do you? Yeah, it's kind of just meaning that it kind of arises out of the brain, mm -hmm. so that the configuration of you know chemicals and electrical activity kind of like produces um, kind of out of that like out of the complexity of the group of it kind of arises the mind. Um, there's lots of emergent properties in in just easier to understand I think in the physical space. Um, I think water uh, could be considered one of them. It's kind of like, you know, you, there's a bunch of small H2O molecules kind of interacting, but then they kind of, out of that emergence, they kind of have a liquidity, kind of mm -hmm. liquid kind of feel to them, although they're just a bunch of atoms kind of interacting. So out of that, out of the, the atoms, the H2O molecules, emerges this kind of like liquid form. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, so out of the brain synapses and so on emerges the mind. Does that really explain what the mind is? What? How would you define the mind? And I mean, yeah, yeah. It doesn't make too much sense to me because you're going kind of from physical to non-physical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ken, do you have anything to say about this? Um, no, I, I agree. It's uh, it's something amorphous. So you know you can't draw something um, you know that's a physical thing and then make it into a an amorphous non-physical. Yeah, that's. I, I don't understand that concept. It's easy to say, but when you really dig into it, it's it's hard to really accept that, that theory. Yeah, that, that's my difficulty with yeah. it too. You know, what is this emergent property? Yeah. Um, could it be yeah. similar to like an electromagnetic field, which we cannot mm -hmm. see with our eyes or ears, but mm -hmm. it exists? Yeah. 
Um, but you can measure that electromagnetic field with scientific instruments. But can you measure personal experience with scientific instruments? You know, can you, uh, like, happiness or affection, can, can you describe them? I mean, you can say certain things are happening in the brain when, you know, there's certain synapses lighting up when somebody's happy or when somebody has affection or when somebody's angry. But those things lighting up are not the experience of those feelings themselves. Yeah? So, um, you know, this I think is, you know, when, when we're feeling happy, we don't think, oh, it's my brain synapses that are happy. <laughs> and I feel happy just because of my brain synapses. Yeah. So there's something about personal experience that, you know, we all feel, but you can't really describe that or measure that through scientific instruments. So there's this whole realm of what the mind is, yeah, that is is a, a matter, I think, of personal experience. And of course, you know, people can tell you about their personal experience, and we can measure physical things that, you know, are symptomatic of personal experience. But these physical things can never be the personal experience themselves. So Buddhism really does research into personal experience, into the mind, uh, because the, the basic premise is that everybody wants happiness and nobody wants to suffer. So since happiness and suffering are personal experience, you know, how do we bring those about? Okay. So the mind is, is said to be something. It, it has two qualities. One is that it is clear in the sense of uh, not being atomic, not being formless, and also in the sense of being able to reflect objects, like a mirror reflects. And the other quality is knowing or awareness so that the mind can actually engage with the objects. So when we use the word mind, it refers to all of sentient experience, whether it is uh, sense perception, you know, what we're seeing with our visual consciousness or tasting with our gustatory consciousness, it, or feelings of happy, suffering and neutral, or pleasant and pleasant neutral, or emotions, you know, love, anger, whatever kinds of emotions. Um, any kind of conscious experience is included in what we call mind. Okay, so it's kind of a, a, a big field because there's a lot to our conscious experience, isn't there? You know, we have direct perception with our senses where we can see the raw data of colors or hear sounds or smell smells. We also have the thinking ability of our mental consciousness that generates conceptions. You know, conceptions, it's, you know, thought. What a strange thing thought is. Have you ever wondered what a thought is and how a thought develops and why you think, you know, let alone observe the contents of our thoughts. Yeah. I mean, it's very rich when we start examining this. Yeah. So where science takes the, the magnifying glass or the telescope or the microscope and looks outward, Buddhism takes the mirror and looks inward and what's our what's going on inside in all these different uh, 
things that constitute our own personal experience. Hmm? So in describing what the mind is, yeah, uh, we see that it, it's something that's formless, so it has a different kind of nature from the brain. The brain is something that has form, it ha- it's composed of phys- physical matter, atoms, and subatomic particles. The mind is not. Yeah. And yet what's very strange about being alive is the mind and the, the physical matter, the brain, the body, uh, have some kind of relationship. Isn't that a strange thing? How does something that is f- without form have a relationship with something that is made of physical matter? How in the world does that happen? You know, and how do these physical organs, yeah, make the connection between external objects and the mind to create experience? Yeah? How does that happen? And, uh, you know, what is happening in the process of that? So, quite a bit to, to investigate, okay? But in general, we have these two things. One is material and the other isn't. Yeah? So they have, because they have these two different natures, material and formless, they have two different continuities. When we look at the continuity of the body in the past, you know, what are the causes of the body? The sperm, the egg, and all the food we've eaten. Yeah, that's what this thing is. It's just recycled food. It's true, isn't it? That's all this thing is. It's is recycled food that's put in a certain order according to, you know, our genetic makeup. That's all. Yeah. And then we have, uh, so that's the cause of the body, the future of the body. What happens at the time of death? What does the body become? Well, again, it gets recycled, doesn't it? And whereas our body, you know, was recycled food, and recycled dirt, basically, you know. Then it goes back into the dirt, or it gets burned, and the ashes go into the dirt, or the CO2 contributes to global warming. Um, No, I have a friend who told me that cremation is really bad for the environment. And I had always thought to be cremated, and she said it's really bad for the environment. Um, In any case... uh, you know, the future of the body is, you know, the worms have lunch. Or somebody has lunch. You know? It's true, isn't it? You know, we think, oh, this body's so precious, my body. Mm-hmm. You know? It's just recycled, you know, vegetables and rice and stuff. And it's just what, what the, you know, either the birds or the worms are going to eat for lunch. All. Oh, cherish it so much. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then the mind. You know, when we look, what what are the causes of the mind? Yeah. And I think here here is where science says, oh, it's an emergent emergent property of the brain, which none of us completely understand. But if we do. Uh, just a little bit of observation of our own experience. Yeah, your mind of today, your experience today, whatever it is about you that experiences. What, what was it yesterday? What was the cause from yesterday that produced today's mind? It was yesterday's mind, wasn't it? Yesterday you had conscious experience, so today. There's a continuation, there's conscious experience. We can trace back this continuity of conscious experience to the time we were born. Okay. Now, did consciousness just happen at the time we came out of our mother's womb? 
or did consciousness exist inside the womb? Well, from a Buddhist perspective, they say that consciousness existed inside the womb as well, and that actually consciousness came. You had the union of the sperm and the egg in consciousness, and that's what produced a living being at the time of conception. So we know where the sperm and the egg came from. Where did the consciousness come from? Not from the stork. (laughs) Yeah, not from the stork. Up until that time of conception, we've had one moment of mind being dependent on the previous moment. So it would make sense that at that first moment of this life, that consciousness had a cause that was similar in nature, a previous moment of consciousness. And since that moment of consciousness was not attached to this body, it must have been affiliated, you know, with, it must have been consciousness before this body, and thus tracing back consciousness into previous lives. Okay. And when we look forward... Now, what happens to our consciousness at the time of death? Because it's very dramatic when somebody dies, isn't it? Because when they're still alive, there's consciousness there. Yeah. When they die, there's a very distinct feeling that something that was there is no longer there. Isn't there? You know, when you've seen a dead body you know something that was there is no longer there. You know, what that was, was consciousness. So mind or consciousness has a continuity. It doesn't just cease at the time of death. But it has a future continuity that again is formless. But depending upon the actions that we did in this life, depending upon the conditioning how we condition our mind in this life, then at the time of death and as the consciousness is leaving this body, it becomes attracted to another kind of body. And it takes rebirth again. Okay? So just in the same way that that our life began with the union of sperm and egg and consciousness, if the consciousness is going to take a human rebirth, you know, after it leaves this body, it enters an intermediate stage, and then from there it transits into the union of the sperm and egg, you know, of another human being. And so that consciousness continues. So just as the body, the material that makes up the body, is continuously changing, it's nothing permanent and fixed, so too the mind is continually changing. It's not a self, it's not a soul, there's not something in the mind that is personally me. So then we ask, well, then exactly who am I? (laughs) You know, this body is the recycled, you know, dirt and food and such. And my mind is coming from something previous, but it's changing moment by moment by moment by moment. Nothing fixed and solid. Yeah, no soul, nothing we can draw a line around and say, that is independently, you know, an independent, existent essence of meanness. We can't find anything there to do that with. So all we're left with is the mind and the body having a relationship. And independence on that, we call it a person. That's all we're left with. Yeah. Mind and body have a relationship. We give it the name person for short. But there's nothing independent in there that is, you know, the essence of meanness. Mm -hmm. So sometimes 
that may seem a little bit fr- scary to us. Oh, but I want there to be an essence of meanness. Yeah. But think again, if there's an essence of meanness, then we could never change. We would be fixed. Yeah. Causes and conditions could never influence us because there would be this independent essence that is always me. Something that's independent can't be influenced by causes and conditions. It's permanently fixed. Are you something that's permanently fixed? If we were permanently fixed, we would never get old. We would never change our mind. <laughs> yeah. We could never become Buddhas. We would, could never have different emotions or different experiences because everything would be fixed. So that's not the case at all. Everything is in constant flux. So this whole system of rebirth functions with the mind continuing from one life to the the next without some sort of concrete essence being there. I don't know about that. But what I find very helpful is uh, the analogy of a river. So if we take the old, let's take the Spokane River, okay? So um, where did we, we talked about this one time. It starts being called the Spokane River when it, when it leaves Lake Coeur d'Alene. But clearly, it had something before. There was a continuity of the water, you know. It isn't like Spokane River started with no water on one side of Lake Coeur d'Alene, you know. There were other rivers. What were the names of the other rivers? Coeur d'Alene River. Oh, Coeur d'Alene River, of course. Yeah, there were other rivers that, you know, came and flowed into Lake Coeur d'Alene. So even though we call it the Spokane River here, it was actually Lake Coeur d'Alene. And then before that was the Coeur d'Alene River. And before that, it was some little creek, or probably several little creeks somewhere, you know, up in the mountains. And then it became the Spokane River, and then it flowed into the Columbia, I imagine, yeah, and then into the Pacific Ocean. So it, this water changed names the whole way, didn't it? Yeah. So what do we have to point to? Yeah. Here is, you know, something where there's water that is changing moment by moment. Yeah. And is the river the water? If the river were the water, which water would it be? Yeah. This part here, the part that is just coming out of Lake Coeur d'Alene at this moment, is that the Spokane River? But then 15 feet after that, that water is not the Spokane River? Or while the water is in still the, in, in the lake, is it the Spokane River? Okay. Or is the Spokane River maybe the, the sides and the bottom? So it, is the river the dirt? that form the boundaries of, you know, through which the water flows? Is the river the shape that the water flows in as it goes meandering? Is the river the falls, the Spokane Falls? Does the river stop before the Spokane Falls and then... It beca- the water becomes the Spokane Falls, and then after that it becomes the Spokane River again. 
Or can it be the Spokane Falls and the Spokane River at the same time? Okay? When we start applying our faculty of analysis to find out just what exactly the Spokane River is, we can't pin anything down, can we? We cannot find something that we can draw a line around and say this is the essence, the independent, unassailable, unchanging essence of the Spokane River. There's nothing there when we look. And yet, we all use the name Spokane River because we say, you know, if you want to get to Gonzaga from the Abbey, go across the Spokane River. No, you don't go across. Do you go across? If you want to get to South Hill, then you go across the, the Spokane River. So we all know where the Spokane River is, and we say, we talk about it, and everybody understands what we're talking about. But when we're trying to identify exactly what it is, we can't. Okay? So in the same way, when we're talking about the mind or when we're talking about the person, if we're trying to find some kind of personal essence that we can isolate and say, this is it, the unchanging essence of meanness, or the unchanging essence of my mind. We can't find anything there. And yet, we can still talk about my mind, and we know, you know, that we have different experiences, and we feel and perceive, and all these things happen on a conventional level when we aren't analyzing. So the mind exists, even though we can't find something that we can isolate as it. In the same way that we exist, even though we cannot identify some kind of soul that is who we are. So when we talk about rebirth, we're not talking about some kind of soul that like floats up out of the dead body, goes across, you know, and goes kerplunk into another sperm and egg. Yeah. It's not something physical that makes that transition, and it's not something that's the same from one life to the next. Because even within one lifetime, our mind is changing all the time, isn't it? Yeah. Are you the same person now that you were when you came in, when you drove up to the Abbey an hour or something ago? Are you exactly the same person? No. Your body's changed. What you're thinking has changed. What you know has changed. Your experience has changed. So all these things change, even though we still have names and consider ourselves people, even though we, you know, we're in this process of continual flux that you can't ever press the pause button on. Yeah. Like sometimes we, we get this, let me just press the pause button and then I can... You know, figure everything out, and then I'll press it, and it can continue. Yeah. But if we press the if there were a pause button and we could press it, then we couldn't figure out anything, because figuring things out means we change. And if we have if we press the pause button, we can't change. We'd be frozen. You know, like, like one of those YouTube. Things when they put up YouTube, they just pick some picture frame, and sometimes you're like, <laughs> but that's the picture that they, that they put up to represent that YouTube video. video. And there you are, you're just stuck. That's unchangeable. Yeah. <laughs> but we know we change. Okay. So rebirth happens even though there's no concrete person or soul that gets reborn. Or put it this way, rebirth happens because there's no concrete essence or soul that's reborn. 
because if there were some kind of essence or soul, rebirth couldn't happen because rebirth means change. Okay? So our mind is something, because it's changing moment by moment, that means it's something that depends on causes and conditions. It's a condition phenomena. It doesn't exist under its own power. It doesn't set itself up. It's completely under the influence of causes and conditions that are not it. Now when you think about that, say that to yourself. I am completely under the influence of causes and conditions that are not me. Or am I going, wait a minute, no, 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 I'm here, I'm me, I'm in control. Don't we feel that? Yeah. Do you feel like you exist only because the causes and conditions for you exist? No, I am here, really. Yeah. But actually, again, when we use reasoning and we investigate, we see there is no controller, that all there are causes and conditions. But what that means is that we can change our experience by changing the causes and conditions. Okay? If everything were set in stone, if everything didn't change because it had some kind of permanent essence, we would be Whatever mood we have right now, we would be in that mood for all of eternity. Okay? <laughs> yeah. But actually, we find that who we are, what we think changes, what we feel changes, our moods change, everything is changing. Why? Because it's all conditioned. Yeah, it's all dependent on other factors. So if we want happiness, what we need to do is figure out what are the causes for happiness and then create them. And if we don't want suffering, we need to figure out what are the causes for suffering and not create them. And so here is where the Dharma becomes really invalid, invaluable. Because the Buddha, through purifying his mind of all defilements, he could see with direct perception, some mental direct yogic perception, you know, what are the causes of happiness and what are the causes of suffering? So he could see that when sentient beings experience happiness, what were the kind of actions they did before that created, that ripened, and that created the cause for that happiness? And when sentient beings experience suffering, what were the things, they, the actions they did before that created the cause for that? And so in Buddhism, you know, when we talk about virtue and non-virtue, wholesome or, and unwholesome, it's something that exists completely in relationship to the results of certain actions. So nothing is virtuous or non-virtuous from its own side because Buddha said so or because somebody else established the rules. Rather, things become virtuous and non-virtuous according to the results that they bring. So the causes of happiness are labeled virtue. The causes of unhappiness are labeled non-virtue. Yeah. When the Buddha looked what these causes were, well, for unhappiness he saw that when we kill people, steal their stuff, have unwise, unkind sexual behavior with them, we create the cause for unhappiness. He saw that when we protected life, respected others' property, and used sexuality wisely and kindly, we created the cause for happiness. He saw that when we lie, when we use our speech for divisive purposes, when we have harsh speech and make fun of people and ridicule them and put them down and scream at them. When we talk garbage, idle talk, we create the cause for unhappiness. 
when we speak truthfully, when we use our speech to reconcile people and maintain harmony, when we speak with kindness and at appropriate times, you know, and in an appropriate amount, we create the cause for happiness. He saw that when our minds get into craving and coveting other people's stuff and thinking about how I can get more and better and more and better for myself, that when I think, you know, and plan how to retaliate, how to make somebody evil, that uh, make somebody suffer, when my mind is completely overwhelmed by wrong conceptions, I create the cause of suffering. When my mind is balanced and I'm not craving things that, you know, aren't mine, I'm not trying to get even, I'm not filled with anger and hatred, but I have a mind that's open and receptive to others. When I have correct views and and conceptions, that creates a cause of happiness. Okay? And so... What we're reborn as from one life to the next depends upon the actions that we did in our previous lives. So we're the ones who are responsible for what we experience. We created the causes. We condition ourselves through our physical, verbal, and mental actions. So this kind of view is very scientific in the sense of discussing cause and effect. Yeah. But it also is very contrary to our usual way of perceiving things in which we think our happiness and suffering comes from what other people are saying and doing or from the external situation. Actually, our happiness and suffering are coming due to our own actions. So happiness and suffering, are they just conceptual too? Does everybody define their happiness the same way or or their suffering the same way? No, people clearly define happiness and suffering differently. But the experience of happiness and suffering, we all know. And what is that? Is that a physical part of the brain or is that also amorphous? It's amorphous, you know, the, the... The feelings, you know, happiness and suffering, pleasant and unpleasant feelings, they are categorized under mind or consciousness. They're part of our conscious experience. They're not biochemical? There may be some biochemical influence, but the feeling themselves are not biochemical. Otherwise, you could have those chemicals reacting in that Petri dish and say there's a Petri dish of anger. Get that Petri dish out of my sight. I don't want to see it. It's angry. (laughs) Yeah? The experience of anger, the experience of unhappiness isn't the the chemicals, uh, you know, and the the electronic things. The endorphins? No, those things may play some role, but they are not the experience. Otherwise, you could have a vial of endorphins and say there's happiness. (laughs) After you take them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why do you need to take them? If they were the experience, just there, in that bottle, you would have happiness. Yeah. Thank you for the very detailed explanation that you're giving us about suffering and so forth. Uh, As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about, for example, genocide or the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. where you had, according to some numbers, millions of Jewish people who were, you know, who suffered tremendously. Mm -hmm. So how would we explain that type of suffering of a great number of people, you know, in that case. Okay. So how do we describe what we call maybe collective suffering? Groups of people suffering together or groups of people being happy together? Because that happens too, doesn't it? 
whole group of people experiencing, you know, some good condition. So we say that that is due to collective karma. In other words, karma that we all created together as a group in the past. So, for example, right now, we are creating collective karma as a group. We are all in here. We generated a motivation, a good motivation, at the beginning of the talk. Remember that? Yeah? So we're creating mental, you know, well, mental, physical, um, mental and speech karma primarily, together, that is virtuous, that will bring a result in some time in the future of experiencing some good kind of opportunity or some happiness together. Yeah. When you look at people, let's say members of, you know, any terrorist organization or um, militia organization, whether in this country or in other countries, people whose aim is to kill, you know, or destroy, they're creating collective karma, and that will ripen in an experience where they experience some kind of suffering <coughs> together. Okay. Now, who you're born as change, you know, changes. In other words, like people will say, well, the Tibetans were kicked out of their homeland in 1959. Does that mean that they created the negative karma that resulted in that while they were still Tibetans in a previous century? No. You know, they they might have all been Tibetans in a previous century, or they may have all been some other group in some other place, or even eons ago in some other situation. Yeah, but creating some karma together that they experience that result together. Okay. And yet, within that group karma that we experience, we also have some personal karma. Some people were sent to the concentration camps and survived. Some of the Tibetans were, you know, were sent into exile and survived, They, you know, or re- whatever. Um, people who create the causes for happiness, they might be in a wonderful situation, but they're in a bad mood and they're miserable. Okay? So we also create not only the collective karma, but the individual karma that will ripen when we're in the situation. Because you can see many people together at some kind of... Um, well, you, you see in this country, you know, we have, an abund- we have so much abundance, and yet there's a lot of suffering. So we created the karma together for abundance compared to the rest of the world, but then individuals within this created the, cause, the causes maybe to be in, you know to be overwhelmed with anger or craving or whatever and not be able to enjoy the abundance. And that's the, the personal karma. So, okay. mm-hmm. so you've got these people that are um, terrorists or whatever and they're killing these people that they're committing genocide on or whatever. Those terrorists doing that to these people that are being genocide, the people that are having genocide committed against them, they created some kind of collective karma before that happened Yeah, that's causing that now to happen to them. Right. That's something we don't like to think about. No, we don't. <laughs> yeah. We like, when we see somebody doing something harmful, we like to think, oh, they'll get their due and they'll suffer in a future life. But when we see somebody suffering who we like, we don't like to think, oh, they created a bad cause. When we see somebody suffering who we don't like, then we say, it's good, they got their due. Yeah? So our minds are not so equanimous, are they? We have a lot of bias in our minds. A lot of bias in our minds. Yeah? I'm curious how how to 
to define or conceptualize karma in my mind as far as if consciousness is, is changing and passing and does not remain within what we would call, you know, the Spokane River or a person at this moment in time, and if they are reborn, you know, say I'm reborn as, as her, so that my consciousness and my experiences, memories, thoughts, everything will change, and then that consciousness takes on a new form. Whereas karma remains with that non-essence of whatever I am changed into, and then affects that. So there's something, it sounds like karma is something that continues throughout existence. Yeah, karma's like a leaf that fell into Lake Coeur d'Alene and starts floating down the Spokane River. Okay? So it's not the river, but it follows the river, but at some point that that leaf can decompose. So in the same way, our actions leave like imprints on, on the mental continuum, but when those actions bring their result, it's like the leaf decomposing. Okay, so the leaves are not permanent. Yeah, they're changing moment by moment too. But they also don't get lost, they don't vanish. They're going to decompose and produce some kind of result. Okay, we're dealing in physical analogies here, which are always difficult because the analogy is just an analogy, it's not. The actual thing, yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned the soul and the mind. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I hear you you're using those interchangeably. Mm. But is there a connection between the soul and the mind? Well, the Bo- Buddhism doesn't speak of a soul. We say there is no soul. Yeah, we talk about the continuity of the mind, but we don't make the mind into our idea of some kind of permanent fixed soul. Okay. Uh, when dealing with karma, we have the capability of uh, dealing with it on our own instead of having others say the genocide that happened to those people. Those people, if they recognize their karma, they can practice and help deal with their karma before yes. their suffering occurs. Right, right. Yeah. So the nice thing, the one good quality of negative karma is that it can be purified mm-hmm. and stopped from ripening. Okay? So you might set some causal energy in motion, but if we purify it and cut the energy or impede the energy of you know, that karmic imprint, then the result doesn't come. Or the result comes in a more minor form, like you stub your toe, you know, or something like that, instead of in the form of a great suffering. So this is why we do a lot of purification practice. You you say the mind is constantly changing. Uh Some... Some teachings say, well, if you don't like what's happening, quote, change your mind as if you have, your brain maybe has the control to change your mind. So I'm a little confused. In those yeah, no, forget the brain for the time being, okay? We, we change our mind by thinking something new. So thinking is part of the mind and yes. part of the brain. Right. Oh, okay. You know, again, there may be certain chemical, electrical things that accompany the thought process, but they are not the thinking. Okay, yeah? In terms of rebirth, is there a certainty that we then become human again, or is is there many different possibilities? There's many different possibilities according to the kinds of actions that we create. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... And it may sound funny to say, for example, that a human being could be reborn as an animal 
or a human being could be born as a celestial being also. But, you know, sometimes we look at certain people and we say their behavior is worse than an animal's. Don't we? The way they're behaving. So, somebody we say that about, if they're accumulating that through their actions, you know, action, karma just means action. So they're accumulating actions that are worse than an animal's, then that could ripen in them being born as an animal or some other kind of lower life form. So, so in a sense, it's related to karma. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Isn't that insult to the animal, though? Pardon me. Isn't that insult to the animal? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. It's it's just. Um, you know, it's just kind of how cause and effect functions. When you when you plant, you know, zucchini seeds, you grow zucchini. And when you plant, you know, tomatoes, you grow tomatoes. It's, things are just a result. Yeah. Well, the reason we call animals, uh, you know, as a as a lower life form than human beings, is because they don't have the ability to reason and to think as we do. So it's very difficult for animals to learn ethical conduct. And thus, how could they create negative or positive karma? Yeah, it's much more difficult, you know, to create positive karma as an animal. Although we have two cats with very different personalities and I think they're creating very different karma. <laughs> Don't you think so? We have one cat who was actually the young one who you think would be intimidated by the old. She is so aggressive. So I think she's creating some karma with her aggressiveness towards the other. And the other cat is just completely like, I'm not going to bother, you know, once in a while she'll give her a swat or, or something, but usually just ignores the antics of the other one. Yeah, so I think they're creating some different karma, cause, you know, different tendencies in their personalities. But regardless, if we try and help all of them have some uh, imprint from Buddhism, so when we have teachings in the house or when we do chanting, you know, we bring the kitties in, so at least they hear something, they get some good imprint. Okay. We're going to have to stop now. I know there's many questions. Your answer might be in the book. <laughs> okay, so let's dedicate, and then we can have lunch and continue discussion after that. So the dedication verses are on page... 30 in the blue book. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore.